wasn't sort of an accidental result. It was the intention from at least this time forward, and really before this time. <clears throat> the people hung upon his words, and that word, think of a cockleburr, you know, just walking around and you go, go for a hike and you walk back with all these little things sticking to you. And that's what people did with respect to Christ and his word. It's what I need to do too. It's what I need to do with respect to his word and me. I need to, to stick to him like glue, so to speak. Uh, but gorilla glue, not library paste. So, um, But the people did focus intently on his word. So here's uh, Christ begins to teach in the temple and the rest of our time in my section, uh, and really this is the last teaching time, the last time of, uh, in which Christ will spend an extended time on the temple mount teaching the people because right after this we go into uh, his betrayal. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Notice that's a, that's a frequent refrain of Christ in the parables, is the master or the king goes into another country for a long time. And I think it's preparing us for the fact that, that uh, don't be discouraged at the length of time, but keep the faith and continue to be ready. And we're going to return to that before we finish today. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? after the tenants had thrown out his first couple messengers. Uh, I will send my beloved son. It may be that they will respect him. When the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let's kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. I'm not sure exactly why they thought that, that somehow killing the heir would enter them into the chain of inheritance, but uh, just demonstrates how twisted the thinking of evil men can become. And they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, God forbid. Really? You say God forbid to a sentence like that? So, so here's the scene. Christ is teaching the people. The words that are there refers to teaching the crowd. But he's not aiming at the people. He's aiming at the scribes and principal men. They're the target, and they clearly recognize that. So parable, the word from which we get parable is the Hebrew word, or the Aramaic word, Greek word actually, parable. Um, it's a fictional but realistic narrative illustrating the duties of man or the, and the, or the character of God, often both. And that word beloved, beloved son, that means really well-beloved, deeply loved. It's the term spoken of the, the son by the father. Remember when when uh, Christ is being baptized by John and he, they hear a voice from heaven saying, this is my, my beloved son, that's this word. Thankfully, it's also the word God uses of us. That we are, in the same way the son was to the father, we are well beloved by the father. If there's something that, if there's anything that can carry us through this life, it's that. It's the fact that we are well-beloved by the Father. Notice the tenant's reaction. Apparently, they feel that the owner is weak. You know, he didn't uh, react strongly when, they, when uh, we kicked out his first messenger without anything. 
They didn't even, he didn't even react strongly when we uh, wounded the third messenger. So he's not going to do anything. We can do what we need to. So they felt he was weak and would avenge his rights, the fruit that they owed him, or avenge his son. They mistook forbearance for weakness. And I give it the two references there are where Peter talks about the fact that a thousand years or is one day, or one day is a thousand years with God, but God's waiting till just the right time. And in Galatians 6, 7, and 8, God is not mocked. The world, and frankly, sometimes we, tend to, whether, whether consciously or not, mock God and say, well, I can do that. There won't be any real consequences. Uh, I may feel a little uncomfortable, but I can still do it. God is not mocked. He won't allow himself, he will never allow us to pursue sin without consequence. And then lastly, the leaders of the people, they perceive that they are Jesus' targets. So they, don't, they not only rec- reject him, they rec- reject the teaching that he's put forth here, which on the face of it and really throughout it is quite reasonable. Why would God not expel the owners and hand the vineyard to others. And then Christ does what he does frequently in, the, uh, in this section and confronts the, uh, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the principal men of the people, and the priests with the scripture. For example, we'll see in the next section when he confronts the Sadducees, the Sadducees only believe in the first five books of Moses. So Christ confronts them with the first five books of Moses. Uh, Similarly here, he confronts them with the word of God. Here a passage from Psalms. But he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken in pieces. But when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. A couple comments really on the words that Christ uses. One is, sadly, the word that's used for rejected, the very stone with the, which the builders rejected, it doesn't mean to dismiss out of hand. It means that the builders looked at the stone carefully, examined it, and then rejected it. And that's what the scribes and chief priests had done with Christ. The other two words that that uh, are in that broken to pieces and crush him. Words are. To point out was how devastating those words are. The broken to pieces means to be shattered. Think of dropping a glass on a stone floor and just shatters into a number of pieces, thousands of pieces, hundreds of pieces. That word crush, I give you there that it's like a winnowing fan. The word, The same words are associated with winnowing. So think of like on a threshing floor that you see frequent references to in the, in the uh, Old and New Testaments. So place on the top of a hill, flat ground, the, uh, they bring in the grain that's just been harvested, but it's a mix of grain and chaff. And so they would take these big fans or forks and toss it up in the air on a windy day and let the wind carry away the chaff to who knows and who cares where while the grain would fall back to the ground. So he compares the folks who reject the cornerstone to that chaff, that dust that's blown away 
and lost forever. Now Christ centers on a period of, of uh, tests because he's pretty much silenced the principal men as they've confronted him publicly. So now they, decided to, they decide to be more subtle. They send spies, and that's the word the scripture uses, spies to pretend to be sincere, and, but to try to trip him up. Their goal is different than it used to be. Previously, they were trying to convict him of a religious crime. Now, they seek to convict him of a civil crime. To have him speak some words which they can take to Pilate and say, Look, this guy is a rebel. You need to deal with him. And of course, Pilate, seeing a threat to Rome, will have to arrest and execute him, as he eventually does. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might take hold of what he said so it's to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Remember in the, the section that we'll, we actually won't cover this semester, of course, but in the section later on when they, uh, the crowd has switched sides and is now on the sides of the priests and they whip the crowd up about Barabbas and uh, Pilate is saying to them, what, what shall I do with your king and, but Caesar? We have no king but Caesar. They reject utterly the authority of God and say, we have no king but Caesar. And it's similar here. They're not seeking to address whether Christ's teaching are from God and to deal with him uh, according to the scriptures. They're seeking to deliver him to the Roman authority. Why? Because only the Roman authority can execute him. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you teach and speak rightly and show no partiality but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a coin whose likeness and inscription has it. They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Of course, a Roman coin, unlike uh, observant Jewish coins, had a portrait on it. And that under, at many points in Jewish history, they would not permit coins that had human depictions because of the prohibition against idolatry in the Pentateuch. But the Roman coin has the image of the emperor, who has the image of God? We do. So give to Rome that which is Rome's. Give to God that which is God's. That word for spies, think of it like a chigger. I don't know if you grew up in the South, for those who did. Whenever you'd, you'd go hiking, you could run into to, uh, chiggers. They would burrow into your skin and uh, raise up these uh, irritating, very itchy lumps. And these, that word for spies is like that, to sort of send someone to burrow in, to lie in wait, and be ready to betray you or entrap you. And the last thing I wanted to cover out of this one was that Christ in this passage really rejects a division of life into secular and sacred spheres. And unfortunately, we do that too. Sunday's Sunday, 
we go we go and Tuesday too, I guess. We go to church, we do the Christian thing, and then we go back to real life. We call it real life sometimes. But that's not God's view of it. All of life is his. And all he gives us instructions for all of life. Sadducees, of course, don't believe in the resurrection. Which resurrection and the Sadducees. Sadducees, of course, don't believe in the resurrection, which is why they're sad, you see. We all heard that, right? Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, New Testament humor. <laughs> there came to him some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. They ask him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her. Likewise, all seven left no children and died. But that the dead are, and then Christ sort of deals with that. He responds to the immediate, immediate issue and points out the difference between life and the resurrection and life here and now. But then he deals with the deeper question they haven't addressed, which is whether there is a resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he, tells, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he's not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And in the hearing of the people, he said to his disciples, so remember again, three groups really, the disciples, the crowd, and the bad guys. So they're the target. So he says, beware of the scribes who like to go about in long robes and love salutations in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So as I pointed out earlier, the Sadducees deny the resurrection, acknowledge the Pentateuch, so Christ answers them from the Pentateuch. That word, the phrase, all live to him. The souls of people are eternal with God or against him. So with God, that passage in John, this is eternal life that they know thee in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent, or in opposition to him. So in that passage in Thessalonians, inflicting vengeance upon those who do not know God and to those who do not receive the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. You've heard this before from this stage. Make sure you're not in that second group. And you don't know Christ. Make sure you're not in that second group. Talk to somebody in your group, talk to me, talk to any of the pastors, talk to the guy next to you. Don't leave without knowing that you're in that first group, not the second one. And then lastly, in this section, Christ rebukes the scribes for their love of praise and prestige, their hypocrisy, and their greed. And then we enter into the section where Christ is, is uh, sitting in the temple with his disciples and he sees the widow come. <coughs> Excuse me. We're all familiar with the story. He looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury and he saw a poor widow put in two 
I'm always tempted when you hear that poor widow to think of Elmer Fudd. Just a widow coin. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to roll a day. Uh, and he saw a poor widow put in two copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all the living she had. So the word that, as I uh, put in your notes, that word for copper coins is lepta, brass coins, that are one 128th of a denarius, a day's wage for labor. So if you think of, if you do a quick calculation and say $15 an hour, eight hours a day, so minimum wage, uh, eight hours a day, works out to be about a buck. And that's all the woman has to live on. She can't live on that. So the widow recognizes that and gives everything she has to God, throws herself completely and utterly on the mercy and provision of God. And then that second word, abundance. And probably you're not like me, but if you are, whenever you hear this, you say, should I be doing what the widow did? And that's the question we have. So that's why I, I wanted to talk a little bit about this passage. And this is my reaction to it. So abundance is over and above a fixed measure. It's enough and to spare for most of the people in this room, hopefully for all of us, we have enough and to spare. God provides richly for us, for some super richly, for others more than adequately. Is it wrong to give? Up? Suggest no. Well, the references I give you there suggest no. While at the same time remaining open to the possibility that God may want, at particular times, more from me. Because he needs it? No, because I need it. So, I need to make sure, and we've had a lot of great teaching on, on money and things. <coughs> Something I'm sure I'm the only one struggling with. But, I need to make sure that my possessions don't possess me, so God may call me, at times to give above and beyond what I plan to, above and beyond giving out of my abundance. Um, that's probably not how I live day to day, week to week, but I need to be open to the possibility. Now, you might have, if you read ahead, you saw that the next, the last part of this passage, almost the last part of this passage, deals with the end times. And you may have been hoping that I would come here and talk about a detailed layout of the end times. Well, prepare to be disappointed. If you want that, listen to Marty on Sunday night, because I'm not going to cover it. Two things, though, I did want to point out out of that time. One is, so the passage says, as for these things which you see, because they're talking about how wonderful the Temple Mount is, the days will come when there shall not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they ask him, teacher, when will this be and what will be the sign that it is about to take place? And sign is, is not everyday news. Sign is an unnatural occurrence, something that transcends the common course of nature. So the two observations, you won't miss it. If somebody says to you, Christ has returned, 
And you say, what, did I miss it? Then he hasn't. Like in Matthew, in the parallel passage in Matthew, he says, as the lightning uh, strikes in the east and you see it all the way across the sky, so will the returning of the Son of Man be. If you don't notice it, it hasn't happened. Nobody will miss these occurrences. The second observation is a warning to be ready worldwide. We're commanded to be watchful and intent on what? And that challenge, I need to challenge myself. I want to challenge, I need to challenge myself. What am I to be intent on? Figuring out when that time is going to be? No, that's not really what I think Christ challenges us to. I need to be, make sure that when he returns, I'm pursuing the work of the kingdom. You remember all those parables where, talks, where Christ talks about, like the ten wise virgins, for example, where Christ talks about somebody who comes back, when the, home, when the homeowner comes back or the bridegroom comes, he expects to find us doing those things he commanded us to do. That's what I need to focus on. It's not, obviously, it's not wrong to, figure out, to try to figure out when Christ is returning. He does want us to be aware of it. But what I should be occupied with is obeying him and being available to him to expand the kingdom. Oops, sorry. One too many. So a couple questions. Well, three actually. How does the world mistake God's forbearance for weakness and how might I be doing that? How might I be presuming on God's grace? The second one, Christ exhorts the crowd to give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Are there any areas where I might not be doing that, giving to Caesar that which is Caesar's? Jeremiah urges the Israelite exiles to seek the welfare of the city in which they were exiled. That's where Jeremiah says, <coughs> Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. How might I as an exile do that better? That is, invest more in to this place of exile. Then lastly, Jesus rebuked the scribe for cloaking hypocrisy, greed, and love of prestige in outward spirituality. Is there any area where I might be doing this? Whoops. Whoa. That's it for me. (laughs) Um, If anyone's new here, uh, please let us know so we can put you in a group. Come and see me. Uh, and, you know, we take things from, from teaching. The, the one thing that I think I'll always remember is uh, 